This is part eight of our Eden to Zion video series, developing a biblical worldview through the grand storyline of the scriptures. Hello, I'm Stephen Buckley, and we've paused between chapters two and three of Genesis to concentrate on the order and the makeup of the cosmic kingdom. Now, last time we looked at what we call theology proper, which I titled the order of Yahweh. We studied his attributes, the names of God, the Trinity, the male terms used, so that we can understand who it is that we worship and is in control. And today in part B of the order of the cosmic kingdom, we're going to turn to the order of the field of play, i.e. the universe, the canvas or the stage of all things. So we're going to look at the dwelling place of God. Where is it? The description of heaven, the nature of the cosmos, including Sheol, Hades and the lake of fire. Where is it? Who goes there? Did Jesus descend to hell? What is the present and future reality? The law and order of the cosmos. We're going to look at God's providence and we'll end with contrasting the biblical worldview with that of others. Yes, it's packed with information, yet the beauty of video is that you can pause it uh, between sections if you like and break it up if you desire, or you can grab a pizza and a drink um, and a notepad and you can just plow through with me. Firstly, let's turn to the dwelling place of God. There is confusion as to where God resides. Too frequently do I hear comments such as, Jesus is with us now, Jesus is in our hearts, and the Father is pictured as living in, in a kind of detached domain or realm. My children ask me, Daddy, where is God now? Where do my prayers go? And we should be able to answer these questions. And when we do, it builds up the worldview for our children or whoever it is that we are to disciple. Now, God rules his universal kingdom from and indeed dwells in his glorious temple, the Father enthroned above all in the heights of heaven. Job 22.12 says, Is not God high in the heavens? Contrary to common platonic thinking, which we will address at the end, he does not live in, in a parallel universe, a competing dimension, or some kind of separate spiritual sphere. Right? He's chosen to dwell within his own creation. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. So he dwells physically above the earth in the outer heavens, but within the expanse of space and the encapsulating waters that we spoke about in Genesis 1. The Garden of Eden was the central sanctuary of the earth, the earth, the sanctuary of the cosmos for man, the universal cosmos, a tent-like sanctuary in itself, and then the heavenly temple sanctuary in the height of the heavens. The Edenic sanctuary with its king corresponds to the heavenly sanctuary with its king. He is not an impersonal God, but rather one that has chosen us for communion, inviting us into his life and graced all with his best household and furnishings. And this is a message that he wishes us to, to embrace with all sentiment. You know, a father that builds a farm for his family to dwell in and then goes off to live in another or kind of zooms off through a matrix into an alternative cosmos is not one that we could trust and, and feel connected to. He created 
All things, largely consisting of water, stretched out a vast expanse within it and then chose to occupy it and fill it with his image-bearing children. Now, in no way does God's proximity define his sovereignty. If I build a house and choose to dwell in it, it does not mean that the house has power over me or I become part of my house, of my creation, right? I, I've just simply chosen to dwell within my creation. If anything, because of his closeness, God's transcendence and omnipotence over space, time and matter is on display for humanity. The heavenly dwelling is in the heights of the heavens, not at the side or below, right? Because God is, is king over all the universe. At the heights of the heavens, as John Oswald writes, he stands over against it, both to judge it and to save it. Consider Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Oswald says that God's transcendence does not rule out his dwelling with the crushed and lowly spirited. In fact, it's those who try to reach the high places of God that must be brought low and kept distant. In the scriptures, the high places are where the idols were put on hills above the towns and the cities. Never would they come close to God's dwelling in the heights of heaven. Like the Tower of Babel, they must fall. The physical uh, translates to the spiritual and vice versa. The good news is that the lowly in spirit who recognize him as creator high and almighty will be revived and set free from the pig's trough of sin. Now in his hymn of praise, David would write, O Lord Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Commenting Matthew Henry wrote, no name is so universal, no power and influence so greatly felt as those of the savior of mankind, but how much brighter it shines in the upper world. His transcendent freedom from his creation is that he is with certain parts of it in ways that he is not with other parts. The height of the heavens is his chosen primary place to dwell above all. The scriptures build somewhat of a picture of this holy place, welcoming us into a glimpse of the stunning beauty of our Lord. Now abundantly clear is that God rules from a physical throne. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The throne in heaven, signifying absolute sovereignty, appears more than 40 times in the book of Revelation. There is only one way this story is going to end, and it's decided by the one on the throne. Now, Daniel 7 and Revelation 4 picture similar scenes of the heavenly throne room. 
While uh, they both refer to an eschatological time, they offer us a glimpse into the unknown. Now, in Daniel, the everlasting father is called the Ancient of Days, who has full use of his heavenly abode, though for important matters takes his seat, his apparel white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool to probably stress his uh, eternality or holiness. His dazzling throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Again, in Revelation 4, I understand that one seated on the throne is the Father. The Father holds the scroll and Christ comes to the one on the throne to receive the scroll. We read, he who sat there had the appearance of jasper, a translucent diamond-like stone, and carnelian, a fiery red stone, forming a complete circle around the throne, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Robert Mounts notes that carnelian has been interpreted in connection with wrath or judgment and the emerald with mercy. He says the rainbow reminds us of God's covenant with Noah prompting the uh, picture of God's awesome presence at Mount Sinai. It continues, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. The seven spirits that are also mentioned in Revelation 1, 4 um, are interpreted as either angelic beings that represent the perfection of God or the Holy Spirit. Some argue a sevenfold activity of the Holy Spirit referencing Isaiah 11, 2, um, but you can argue there's only six um, that are mentioned, not seven. It continues, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Furthermore, uh, Daniel 7 uh, and Revelation 4 tell us that surrounding the awesome presence of God, uh, multiple government thrones are set up or placed for the heavenly judgment court. Now, in the heavenly court, there are judicial books, including those that document the thoughts and actions of every soul who lives on earth, not to mention the Lamb's book of life, filled with the names that Jesus will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Daniel 7 says, the court sat in judgment and the books were open. Neither Daniel 7 or Revelation 4 reveals who occupies the thrones, but Revelation 4 tells us around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, the word elder throughout the scriptures is representative of uh, the head of a city, a family, a tribe or nation, or of the local church. The word elder 
speaks of a man of age who has developed maturity which qualifies them for position. Now, the Greek word for elder is not used for angels and would be inappropriate because they do not age or, or mature in the, in the same sense. Elder here, for me, in Revelation, must refer to mature uh, human men who represent the body of believers um, and not angelic creatures. Now, equally, their garments and crowns indicate they are men who are overcoming victors and have, have received Christ's righteousness. Angels are are not pictured elsewhere as ruling from thrones with crowns, uh, whereas believers are promised they will receive victors' crowns and have authority to reign. Now, some see this as a picture um, as, as, as part of what is referred to as the, the divine council, which we'll address next time. They tend to lean on extra-biblical texts such as 1st Enoch uh, 46, 47 and 98 um, that, that depict similar scenes uh, and, they, and that refers to angels. Look, we can learn uh, about the worldview of the biblical authors from these texts, but the Bible just cuts through butter with a knife, right? And, and at least in this scene, it refers to them as elders. Now, interestingly, 24 is the number of uh, the priestly courses as given in 1 Chronicles 24. Uh, King David distributed the uh, 24 heads of the priestly families into 24 courses um, that operated in, in rotating shifts in, in the temple service. And these 24 heads were uh, representative of the wholesome priesthood. The picture could be... Um, 12 thrones, representatives for uh, the 12 tribes of Israel, and then 12 thrones for the 12 apostles of the Lamb, totaling 24 representatives. Um, they will be kind of like priestly princes ruling with the anointed high priest King Jesus. In Revelation 21, with regards uh, the New Jerusalem, we see inscribed on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel, with 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. While we, we cannot be certain, um, these two lots of 12 representatives of Israel and the apostles make sense. Um, I will add that Daniel Stramara connects the elders with the Feast of Weeks. He says this, at the Feast of Weeks, Jews from all over Israel were to bring their offerings of first fruits to Jerusalem. Israel was divided into 24 districts, each with its own liturgical elders. The, the, the elder is the representative of the priestly people who celebrate the first fruits of God's harvest. The elders played a role in the first Sinai theophany, and hence elders play a role here as well. Um, the yearly assembly of these elders could, could have been pointing forwards to the, the eschatological heavenly scene. God the Father as the Ancient of Days is the supreme ruler and th this court of elders is a witness and in agreement. It's not as, it's not as if God's sovereignty has been delegated. Paul Tanner, who uh, agrees with me that these elders are faithful saints, remarks, the context makes clear that the imagery is, des is designed to depict the Ancient of Days acting in judgment, not ruling in general. There is a heavenly court that participates with him, i.e. is there to witness and affirm the judgment he renders. These elders fall down and they cast their crowns 
before the throne and they worship him who is on the throne and this scene will take place when these these representatives receive their garments and crowns so the end of the age right um, it's eschatological and therefore it's depicting uh, the decrees um, the judgments at the day of the Lord that's how I understand it now the heavenly throne room is a place of sovereignty uh, holiness it's a place of power and authority it's a place of majesty and honor a, a place of praise and glory of true justice of purity of grace and eternal life so where does the eternal Son of God fit into the picture. Now, originally, it seems that the Son of God would regularly descend um, and ascend uh, from the heavenly throne room to the kingdom of Eden. And then after the introduction, introduction of sin, he returned to the high and holy place of his creation, um, except when he returns to show up in a theophany. Um, so where is Jesus now? Right? We know that after the cross and resurrection, the majesty of the Son sat at the right side of the majesty of the Father. So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. David spoke of this. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Where is Jesus now? He sits at the right hand of the Father in the heights of the heavens, though uh, no doubt he will walk and commune in the heavenly surroundings. It's his Holy Spirit that is present with us and working in us and through us. Ezekiel in chapter 1 and Isaiah in chapter 6 um, experience visions of what I understand as the Son of God on a throne. Firstly, Ezekiel 1 begins with, a great cloud with brightness around it and fire flashing forth continually and in the midst of the fire as it were gleaming metal and from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures and this was their appearance they had a human likeness but each had four faces and each of them had four wings these living creatures have a calf's foot, a human hands, and each with human and animal faces, sparkled like burnished bronze, the appearance of torches. Under the throne are wheels, uh, their appearance was like, was like the gleaming of beryl, and the construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in any of their four directions without turning as they went, and their rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full of eyes all around. The wheels would follow the living creatures in any direction, uh, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. You can imagine Ezekiel seeing this and just thinking, how do I explain this? <laughs> um, and then above these living creatures and unique wheels, there is an expanse shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads. 
Above the expanse, a throne in appearance like sapphire, and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance, and upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were gleaming metal like the appearance of fire enclosed all around, and downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw as it were the appearance of fire, and there was brightness around him like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud on the day of rain so was the appearance of the brightness all around such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the lord and when i saw it i fell on my face and i heard the voice of one speaking human appearance this is the eternal son who was not a human before he became incarnate right um, but he would appear as a man this is a, a prelude of the incarnation of messiah but in his character as savior and as judge in a very similar vision the holy spirit lifted Ezekiel up from Babylon and allows him to see the glory of the Lord depart the temple in Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 10, again, the throne is something like a sapphire and whirling wheels beneath and the living creatures are called cherubim. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. We can see the similarities with the description of the Father on the throne in heaven, the, the thunder, the lightning, fire, torches, the angelic creatures, although these have four wings rather than six in Revelation 4, the sea of glass-like crystal of Revelation 4, 6, and the expanse shining like or inspiring crystal here in Ezekiel 1, And notably, the rainbow, even though God's wrath was falling on Jerusalem, his rainbow reminds him of the covenant with Noah. Daniel 7 pictures the throne with wheels, but here Ezekiel's vision of the wheels are more prominent, aren't they? Giving the impression that it's a heavenly portable throne that can kind of travel in any direction in space, a kind of cloud-riding cherubim throne chariot with boundless mobility. Isaiah 2 encounters a vision of the Lord in chapter 6. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. In verse 5, Isaiah says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of these angelic creatures called a seraphim flew over and touched his lips with burning coal to cleanse them of sin. And then the Lord commissions him. The seraphim have uh, six wings, whereas Revelation 4 are living beings with four wings. And Ezekiel 1 are different types of living beings with uh, four wings referred to as cherubim. Uh, there's no mention of wheels like Ezekiel 1 um, and Ezekiel 10 or Daniel 7. No form is mentioned as 
such of the one on the throne. This seems like a prelude to the future temple and throne in Jerusalem, um, which Ezekiel goes on to describe in his latter chapters. Barnes describes it as a vision of God incarnate, seated in glory. Uh, uh, Abner Ezra says the vision refers to the exaltation of Christ after his humiliation here on earth. In fact, most commentators see the Son of God on the throne in Ezekiel 1 and Isaiah 6. In John's Gospel, after quoting Isaiah 6, connecting it with Jesus' activity, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Paul too tells us that the Holy Spirit was involved in speaking here in the book of Acts. So we see the fullness of the Trinity in these visions of God upon a throne. Now, of course, this isn't a full exegesis of these passages, um, but you know what? sometimes we're so consumed with figuring out the meaning of each element rather than appreciating the picture as a whole. So let's ask ourselves, how do these visions compare with your view of the Father enthroned in heaven? When we think of Jesus, do we tend to think of a man in scruffy clothes? Why not the king enthroned? Why not, as Matthew Henry puts it, upon a throne of glory, a throne of grace, a throne of triumph, a throne of government, a throne of judgment? Some of us need to recalibrate our view of him. It should make us recognize our shortcomings like Isaiah and fall on our, our face like Ezekiel. Jesus Christ is the king of glory. Now, these physical thrones govern from a great physical temple sanctuary. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Daniel 7 also reveals the magnificent temple complex is large enough that a thousand thousands serve him, presumably angels. Inside the temple there are also voices and sounds and music and lighting and rumblings and peals of thunder. And in this place you can hear things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words. The great temple has many rooms, an inner and outer courts with a real burning golden altar before the throne where the ascending prayers of the saints given by the Lord are incensed by an angel's golden censer. That's what happens to your prayers. Don't believe me? An angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. All the prayers of the saints are received and offered on the golden altar before the throne. God not only hears your prayers, he smells their aroma and sees them rise before him. The temple complex will be surrounded by a garden paradise, most presumably with rivers, magnificent trees and such. And these paradisal gardens within which is the great temple complex, within which is the throne of the Most High God, is the headquarters of the universe. The heavenly temple is the true tabernacle which Eden and all others would reflect and or be copies of, created before and without a assistance from man. Let me just defend the literal hermeneutic. 
While a complete understanding of the essence of God's dwelling is impossible, these are real thrones and real altars and a real temple made from the same atomic structures as earth. Now, some argue that the Father is incorporeal, therefore without hands or sides in which to orientate a seat for the Son. Just because the Father is spirit and does not have a human body does not mean he hasn't chosen to manifest a visible body that we can relate to and then created us in the image of him, which includes his chosen physically appearing features. If this is how he represents himself in the scriptures, this is the way that we should acknowledge and think of him. Otherwise, the alternative is that we take every element of the picture and make them symbols of meanings and we each build a dissimilar abstract picture in our head, right? We all end up with a different picture of God. He's given us the pictures and they are the ones that we are to receive, whether there is additional meaning and significance to the elements or not. We can't dismantle biblical visions to build our own vision from an interpretation that suits us. From Hellenistic thinking about God's dwelling place to over-spiritualizing the detail, we do disservice to the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself to us. We know that Jesus is now in a resurrected human body that requires a real throne to sit as a real king. He doesn't sit at the right hand of a giant metaphor, right? If we can't accept that God sits on a real throne in a real temple with paradisal gardens surrounding in the, the heaven of heavens, ruling as a real king above all creation, then how on earth do we understand anything about him? It's his revelation or none. Let's not try to outsmart God. We don't take orders from a metaphorical king or fellowship with an emblematic king. Neither is the temple housing, its thrones, abstract symbols that only a scholar could grasp the deep enigmatic meaning of. Every throne and temple-like structure, whether cartoon drawing or built with bricks, are simply crude imitations of the original and influenced by the garden sanctuary, usually with our own idol of choice as king. Few details are given about God's dwelling place for good reason, not because it's so detached from earthly realism, and certainly not that we don't look to the heavens in prayer. Rather, it isn't the home that he's given to man originally, or as our final destination, the promised kingdom on earth is. The nature of the cosmos. Let's zoom out for a moment and take a look at the nature of the cosmos. We established God's holy and beautiful habitation in the heavens is described as enthroned above the circle of the earth. With the earth being below, God comes down to see the affairs of man. He looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Men are taken up into the heavens, so he is above, we are below. By the way, the heavenly sanctuary is likely on an unblessed planet like earth, the glory of Yahweh covering the planet. Think about that. <laughs> the heavens and the earth, which, which are, are physical in nature, contain all things within which angelic creatures, man and all living things reside. We can call off the search for aliens immediately. The biblical worldview is not 
the heavens and Saturn or the heavens and Mars, but the heavens and the earth. The heavens are plural and continuous, flowing from one to the next without physical barrier. The plurality is given from the boundaries of governance between them. So the cosmic tabernacle has a lower and upper courts, access controlled by the throne room. Elon Musk will never make it to the highest heaven unless he puts his faith in the one on the throne. Even then, it will not be on his rocket. Rather than uh, the common labels of natural and supernatural, the Bible speaks of the heavens and the earth being dynamic, visible and invisible. Paul wrote, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We read in Hebrews, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. The NET translates it so that the visible has its origin in the invisible. To say that the invisible does not exist is to deny that the visible has its origin in the invisible. To say the visible creation was made by the invisible requires faith. The Bible uses words such as heavenly, divine, miraculous, rather than supernatural. In the beginning, God created the natural and the supernatural. No. <laughs> In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The physical is immeasurably more dynamic than we can fathom. And perhaps quantum mechanics is bidding to discover and explain such. Miracles are God using his creation and making things happen through his own laws of physics, etc., which are more dynamic than we tend to suppose. You know, when Jesus entered the room of the disciples after his resurrection, we think, wow, his body must be completely different to go through walls, to, to walk through walls. But who questions the nature of the wall? <laughs> his human body was resurrected to life, and the dynamics of, of physical things, of both the wall and the body, may have allowed him to pass through. Now, having said that, the scriptures don't actually say he walked through the wall or the locked door. He could have entered when the others did, but remained invisible until he chose to become visible to them. After uh, speaking and breaking with uh, the two that were on the way to Emmaus, Jesus vanished from their sight. How could a man walk on water? Well, how could water be dynamic to hold up a man? <laughs> when we view the miraculous from a worldview that operates with a dynamic view of the heavens and the earth, God's activity is not downplayed. On the contrary, his sovereignty and providence is more potent, and the potential of divine intervention for me is, is presented as more viable. Our creator commands his creation, and it moves and slows and bends and straightens and rises and falls and shrinks and multiplies and hardens and softens and grows and withers upon his dictation. There is truth and reality outside of the physical, but it is within the physical heavens and the earth primarily that God works for humanity. God is earthlier than we tend to think. We are not to detach ourselves from the reality of the, the material world. There, there is the spiritual aspect, uh, the, the invisible of course, but everything is to be seen as a whole referred to as the heavens and the earth. Now, furthermore, the physical heavens and the earth are inherently good. 
for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. We remember that God declared his creation in Genesis 1 as very good. We are not to be anti-material, anti-earthly. We shouldn't elevate the spiritual above the physical. God has designed the cosmos in such a way that the material and the immaterial, or biblically the visible and the invisible, complement and affect one another. Man was created as spirit and body as one. Death, which is the separation of the two, is tragic. Relationships between spirits, souls, profit from, from the bodily aspect of their being, don't they? <laughs> right? God's plan and purposes are very much earthly. That we see and experience visible creation, at least in terms of awareness, means that is the way that God wants it to be. The earth, our bodies, material, the visible, is good and a blessing. What we do with it is a different matter. Once more, time in heaven is comparable to that on earth. It is not a different realm unconnected by time. About half an hour, as it says in Revelation 8.1, half an hour in heaven is comparable to half an hour on earth. Mirroring the high and holy habitation then, the kingdom of Eden was made in the image of the heavenly kingdom. The paradisal gardens made in the image of the heavenly one. A temple made in the image of the heavenly temple. A priestly, kingly man made in the image of God. This earth was a good and beautiful reflection of the heavenly home as angelic messengers would descend and ascend between the two. Continuing the theme of the universal cosmic canvas, we may ask, what is beneath the earth? Which leads to the question of hell. What is it? Where is it? Does it exist presently? Now, the modern English word hell is derived from Old English hell, H-E-L or H-E-L-L-E, dating back to the 8th century, meaning the world of the dead. Now, all forms derive from a reconstructed proto-Germanic noun, meaning concealed place, uh, the underworld. And in turn, the proto-Germanic form derives from a proto-Indo-European root, kel or col, meaning to cover, uh, conceal, save. Um, now, because the modern English word hell is used to, to cover a Sheol, Hades and Gehenna, which you may have heard and read, we tend to get confused. The word hell muddies the two main realities. We are required to unpack this bundle that we have wrapped up as hell. Now, essentially, we're dealing with two realities. One is a present reality, Sheol in, in the Hebrew or Hades in the Greek, and one is an eschatological reality, Gehenna, the lake of fire. So, let's get some clarity. Firstly, Sheol, a Hebrew word in the Old Testament. The Old Testament always describes people who go down to Sheol, are brought down to Sheol. Those who go down 
to the pit. I made the nations quake at the sound of its fall when I cast it down to Sheol with those who go down to the pit in the world below. Ezekiel 31. Sheol is within the earth. Hell is not a separate dimension. It's a real physical place. Sheol, the present reality, is the world deep below the surface of the earth. Now Job says, can you find out the limit of the Almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? This is our biblical worldview. Heavens above, the earth below, and then down to Sheol within the earth. In Numbers, we read of how Korah and his 250 men challenged the leadership of Moses. The ground under them split apart, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their household and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. This is the clearest example that Sheol is within the earth. God brought them down alive in full view of the Israelites and he closed the earth back over them, a real location within the earth. So the purpose is a holding place of the dead. Proverbs 7 says, her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So there are chambers. Jacob knew Sheol was the abode of the dead awaiting judgment. I shall go down to Sheol to my son. He thought Joseph had died. He assumed Joseph went to Sheol and he thought that he would join him on death. King David knew he was destined for Sheol and he also wished for his enemies to go there. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I am about to go the way of all the earth. Moreover, you also know what Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his grey head go down to Sheol in peace. And there is also with you Shimei the son of Gerah the Benjamite from Beirim, who cursed me. You shall bring his grey head down with blood to Sheol. But David also says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David had faith in God to resurrect him, and that Messiah would not see corruption. He knows he's going down, but he also knows he won't be left there forever. Old Testament faith was in the promised seed, Messiah, who would be resurrected the breaking of the power of death, meaning that they too would be resurrected. Their hope was in the resurrection by the promised one. It's entirely up to God who lives, dies, and is raised up. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Then there's this uh, peculiar scene in 1 Samuel 28, whereby Saul, uh, who had outlawed mediums, goes in disguise to visit the medium at Endor, and he asks her to conjure up the prophet Samuel from Sheol. And he said, divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. And the woman said to Saul, I see a God. Now God here, the Hebrew is Elohim, which can be translated as ghostly figure or spirit as well. Um, 
coming up out of the earth. And he said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel and he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. This really is the prophet Samuel, whose spirit has been called up from Sheol, and the Lord really speaks through his spirit. We noted that he was disturbed from his place and was wearing a robe and appeared as an old man. Therefore, he must have been at some kind of peace to be disturbed. Um, he's also given some dignity with clothing, um, but he's not He's not received his glorified body yet um, at the resurrection. He, he appears as an old man. The mechanics of, of how this kind of raising of the spirit from Sheol works and kind of by what authority and, 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 and why God allows this kind of channeling of spirits, I do not know. I could take some guesses, but I don't want to know. It's a dangerous game. Uh, and, and today, you know, most people who say they're hearing from the dead, that they're just fakers, they're, they're magicians. Um, but the few real ones are unaware that they are channeling the dead from Sheol. Now, Psalm 49 says, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Like sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. All went down to Sheol, the place of the dead. Some had faith that God would ransom their soul from the power of this holding place to be received by him. Now, Sheol can be translated grave, which doesn't really do the reality justice. Um, it is described as a prison where some are in torment. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol, says in Isaiah 38. People descend together into the dust, to the bars of Sheol, in the house of darkness, in Job 17. The depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, I am shut in so that I cannot escape, Psalm 88. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Psalm 89, the pit of destruction, Isaiah 38. For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you. Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. I love the wording there, Sheol does not thank you. It's kind of an understatement. Um, we quoted David last time regarding God's omnipresence. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. So when people say that hell is a place absent from God, 
it's not strictly true, even of the eschatological reality. He, he is fully in control of Sheol, and while his presence is in some way there, his blessing is principally removed. So it's a holding prison with various chambers or regions for judgment. Just as serious, serious offences in our society today go to prison on remand before judgment, so before the cross, men were held in Sheol. Real offences, real holding cells. Okay, let's turn to the word Hades. When the New Testament author uses the Greek word Hades, they are precisely referring to the Hebrew for Sheol. The Septuagint, the, the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, translated Sheol as Hades, which is a, uh, a word in mythology connected with the underworld. So the New Testament authors the New Testament author's continued use of this translation means the reader would understand Hades to directly refer to Sheol. So there's a continuity from Sheol to Hades. Um, they are the same thing. Again, the location is described as within the earth. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Christ looks beyond the cross. From the earth you will ascend to heaven or you will descend to Hades. And these acts of judgment that brought men down to Hades serve as an example of what is to come. The New Testament worldview is described as heaven or on earth or under the earth, Revelation 5.3. In heaven or on earth or under the earth, Revelation 5.13. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Heaven, earth, under the earth. A continuation of the worldview from the Old Testament to the New Testament that should be our worldview too. Again, the purpose is a holding place for judgment. It is described as gloomy darkness, Sheol, Hades, until the judgment of the great day, Gehenna, the lake of fire, a punishment of eternal fire. Its purpose is to keep the unrighteous under punishment, that Sheol, Hades, until the day of judgment, Gehenna, the lake of fire. 2 Peter 2, 9 and 10. We see the distinction between a present holding place and the future lake of fire. Then there's the illustration that Jesus gave of the rich man and Lazarus. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And the rich man calls to Abraham, but Abraham says, Lazarus is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There are regions within Sheol, Hades, notably at two sides for men, the wicked who are in anguish and those of faith 
who are comforted. And this is implied in the Old Testament and articulated in Second Temple Judaism. So Jesus's illustration would have been understood. They can not cross and they can see each other and they can hear each other. The moans and, and groans of, of, of the side of anguish would echo across the chasm. And angels are seen to carry the spirits to their dwelling under the earth and no doubt act as prison guards and so forth maintaining the order. This weird thinking that Satan or his demons are, are in charge of hell, right, or Sheol Hades, it's just nonsense. I don't know where that thought came from, but no, God um, and his righteous angels are firmly in charge. Hades is called the abyss, um, the Greek abyssos. Um, so sometimes you'll see it translated as abyss or bottomless pit that demons do not want to be cast to. And demons knew that Jesus could command them to depart there, as we see in Luke 8. The beast of Revelation comes out of the abyss and will be sentenced to the lake of fire. Hades too is described as a prison of torment. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, Hades, shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, the Greek is actually Tartarus in uh, participle form, Tartaru, meaning in Greek mythology, the deepest abyss of Hades, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he, could, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment, Sheol Hades, until the day of judgment, the lake of fire, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, 2 Peter 2, 4-10. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Jude 1, 6-7. I'm not going to comment on every passage. I just want to build a picture of Sheol, Hades. Demons connect it with torment in Matthew 8:29. So it's a holding place of fallen angels and demons as well as men. Revelation 20 refers to it as a prison for Satan during the thousand-year reign of Christ. I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, which means, again, who is in charge? God who delegates the task to righteous angels, and only one is necessary to chain and seize the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So Christ and Hades and Sheol. Jesus said, I have the keys of death 
and Hades in Revelation 1.18. We read in Ephesians that after his death, he descended into the lower regions, the earth, and in 1 Peter being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, 1 Peter 3.18-20. In the Old Testament, you were helplessly destined for the grave down to Sheol, which is why it was necessary for Messiah to suffer, die, and to descend to Sheol to save the faithful from the power of death and the gates of the underworld. Jesus took us from this holding place of the grave and then after the cross when he ascended on high he led a host of captives as it says in Ephesians 4 8. Before the cross everyone went down to Sheol Hades on the side of the wicked or the side of the righteous and now after the cross the spirits of the wicked go down to Sheol and the spirits of the righteous go to heaven to join the Lord. Jesus said for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth yes the tomb uh, but he's referring to sheol hades when jesus said to the criminal on the cross next to him today you will be with me in paradise in luke 16 he's referring to the region of the righteous in hades the greek and the hebrew for paradise are lent from a persian word for a pleasant enclosed resting place see uh, john nolan's commentary on luke second temple jewish thought pictures paradise as a region of Hades along with Abraham. So Jesus didn't mean that he would be with him in the paradise of heaven, but that he would be with him on the side of Abraham and clan in in Hades. His descent to Hades doesn't mean Jesus experienced torment or that people got a second chance. Peter quotes a David's psalm in Acts 2, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, a direct translation of Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter witnessed what David foresaw, that Jesus would not remain in the grave, but be raised up from Sheol, Hades, defeating the power of death the future of Hades then. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Revelation 20, 13 to 14. So in summary of Sheol, Hades, it is deep, it's bottomless, negative, it's in the depths of the earth, it's a holding place awaiting judgment, it includes 
torment. There are various regions. It holds angelic creatures, men. It is controlled by angels under the orders of God and is a present reality. At the end of the millennial reign of Christ, a thousand year reign, Sheol Hades will empty its contents into the lake of fire, having been judged at the great white throne and found not written in the book of life. So that's the present reality. Gehenna is the place of the lake of fire. Now Jesus speaks about hell more than any of his contemporaries. Jesus spoke of a place of judgment called Gehenna, typically translated as hell. Now Gehenna is a valley just south of the old city of Jerusalem bordering Mount Zion. So you have uh, the Temple Mount running down to, to, to Mount Zion, the old city of David, and you come south down into the valley, sometimes referred to as Wadi Rababa or Wadi Ranane. Uh, so the Valley of Kindron is east of the Temple Mount between the Mount of Olives and then south is Gehenna. I've increased the terrain on the image threefold to accentuate the valleys. Today it has been filled uh, in somewhat with a road that runs through it. It's mentioned in the Old Testament as the Valley of Hinnom or the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. Now going back to Mosaic law, unclean things, everything from clay pots, food, liquid, fabric, leather, metal items such as weapons should be burned or cleansed with fire. Now the law also insisted that the fire on the altar must be kept burning, it must not go out. Now the temple altars were not used for this general burning and cleansing, uh, but the fires for the unclean things would likely be kept burning too uh, in fires outside of the city. And the valley of Hinnom would be the practical place. Now later the Israelites turned from God and they sacrificed their children in the fires of the valley of Hinnom to the Canaanite god Molech. Now within the valley of Hinnom there is a place called uh, Topeth or Topeth uh, which is uh, where they sacrifice children and it's mentioned in Isaiah 30 33. For a burning place, Hebrew Topeth, has been long prepared. Indeed, for the king it is made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulphur, kindles it. This passage includes immediate and eschatological significance. Ultimately, it's Messiah King who has long prepared Gehenna and will set it ablaze. Now, because of Israel's adultery, God declared he will change the name of the valley. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called Topeth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter, Jeremiah 19.6. Gehenna was the valley where Jews were thrown during the siege by the Babylonians, but this prophecy of Jeremiah has not been properly fulfilled. So in Jewish thought, they viewed uh, the fulfillment eschatologically. That's how they, they saw it. Now after exile, King Josiah would make reforms and defile Topeth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. 
The Valley of Hinnom went on to become a perpetual burning place of rubbish with animal corpses and corpses of criminals and all matter of garbage. And the valley would utterly stink. Maggots and worms would be crawling through it. Everyone in the region knew of the valley and no one wanted to go down there. In fact, every Jew in Israel would have knowledge of it as they travelled to Jerusalem three times a year for the feasts. Gehenna is the Greek transliteration of the Hebrew Gehinnom, i.e. the Valley of Hinnom or Gibenhinnom, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom. And it's this place that Jesus not only uses as an, as an illustration, don't stop there, this is the very place that Jesus pointed to as the eternal lake of fire. That is how the Jews of the day understood it. Jesus wasn't painting an unusual picture here. Jewish Jewish thought understood that Gehenna was the final place of judgment from God, which, as well as you know, the practicality of a rubbish tip, is why they dumped the rubbish and evil men into the fire and worms there, believing that they were acting in accordance with the scriptures as guardians of the valley. So who goes to Gehenna? You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 21-22. In fact, unrepentant sinners are called a child of hell, Gehenna, a child of Gehenna, Matthew 18, 9. Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell, Gehenna, Matthew 23, 33. The one who conquers will have this heritage, eternal life in, in the kingdom, and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexual and moral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Revelation 21, 7 to 8. Gehenna is described as a lake of fire that should send shivers down your spine. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Gehenna, Matthew 5, 29. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Gehenna, Matthew 5, 28. But I will warn you, whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell, Gehenna. Yes, I tell you, fear him, Luke 12, 5. It is better for you to enter life at the resurrection, crippled or lame, than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell, Gehenna of fire. Matthew 18. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, Gehenna, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
for everyone will be salted with fire. Mark 9, 43 to 49. Jesus is quoting the final verse of Isaiah 66. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. For their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Isaiah 66, 24. And he is saying this place spoken of in Isaiah 66 is Gehenna. And I'm pretty sure that the Targum Isaiah, which is an Aramaic translation with some paraphrasing and explanation, refers to it also as the Valley of, of Hinnom, Gehenna. So again, this, this isn't wildly out there in terms of Jewish rabbinical thinking. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 13, 41 to 42. Those who walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. Jude 11 to 13. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Revelation 29 and 10. Jesus is developing the theme of the prophets. The burning place has long been prepared. He stood before them like I am the eschatological king it is made ready for, to administrate. The eternal burning lake of eternal torment for eternal punishment, which are eternal consequences for eternal personal harms, for eternally dark hearts of men and angelic creatures, a place to greatly fear. I like the way that Harrigan puts it. Real fire will actually burn real people because of real damages done to a real creation which holds real value. On numerous occasions, the New Testament refers to the destruction of the ungodly. Now, some then argue for annihilationism, meaning a finite period of judgment, often quick, followed by uh, the complete end to the existence of the spirit and body. Now, firstly, the context of some of the passages refer to the day of wrath upon Jesus' return, i.e. The, the initial judgment upon those that are living at the time. Now, secondly, destruction does not mean an end to consciousness, but the continual ruining of the person, which is why 2 Thessalonians includes the phrase eternal destruction. Now, for those who may uh, posit the thought that eternal punishment for sin seems an unbalanced judgment, Firstly, we, we fail to grasp the extent and weight of the transgression of creature against creator God when we sin. Secondly, when a person goes to Gehenna, they will continue to sin in bitterness and anger against God. The, hard, the hearts are so hardened and they must be continually punished for their continual unrepentant state for which they can never change. If God did not punish the wicked eternally, his justice and glory would be counted insufficient. Men's arrogance leads uh, towards the thought that, you know what, if it's not happened yet, 
I just can't imagine it. So it probably doesn't mean what it says. Again, if we can't receive this simple description of uh, you know, a real location of a lake of fire, then we dismantle Jesus's imagery only to build our own spiritual version of hell in another dimension. Each one of us comes up with our own super spiritual version of hell, often to play down their, their own sin, right? Out of sight, out of mind. James warns us to watch our words. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Gehenna, James 3.6. Gehenna is always eschatological. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Matthew 13, 39 to 40. This harvest language is eschatological, a picture of separating the righteous from the wicked, the destiny of the wicked being burned with fire. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Matthew 25, 31 to 46. As he is saying this, Jesus is stood on the Mount of Olives facing the temple. He places the goats on the left, the unrighteous on the left. Why? Because as he points to the left, he's pointing to Gehenna. <laughs> From where he's standing, that's where Gehenna is. He's physically separating them because those on the left, the goats, will be led down to the lake of fire. And we will look at this in more details when we get to uh, the New Testament. Revelation 4 says that if anyone receives the mark of the beast, they will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name revelation 14 10 to 11 several years back this passage woke up my spirit as well as the descriptions of fire and sulfur and forever and ever this passage underlines where the eschatological hell is in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of of the Lamb. If Jesus rules the earth from Jerusalem and the lake of fire is some kind of illustration of a distant vague dimension elsewhere, then how can it be in the presence of the Lamb? If the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, is filled with fire to become a lake of judgment, then it is on display for everyone and the eternal smoke that rises from it would be seen not just from the temple, but it would be known throughout the world as a warning to those who are allowed to continue 
continue into the millennium and it will glorify the lamb on the throne who is a god of justice when people say that hell is a place of god's absence it's really a way to soften the blow of hell and to play it down the reality is that the lake of fire will be in the chief nation south of the temple and the city in the presence of the lamb and there are other passages that show um, an eschatological context gehenna is never presented as a present reality the lake of fire becomes a reality at the the time of the first resurrection at the end of the age let me underline our hermeneutic here because for some it could be mind-blowing and we don't want to let go of our old frameworks a hermeneutical principle is to ask how did the recipients the direct recipients understand the message Jesus isn't referring to Gehenna as a new illustration of God's final judgment place on a Sunday morning, right? <laughs> I've said this, all the Jews, they would know of Gehenna with its past history and its present repulsive state. They already understood Gehenna as an eschatological judging place. And these phrases of gnashing of teeth, fire and sulfur, the worm does not die, unquenchable fire, or even second death that's used in Revelation. These were used in the Old Testament and in the literature of the day, such as the Aramaic Targums, First Enoch, Fourth Ezra. They already associated this eschatological language with Gehenna. They understood Jesus's message that if you repent, you inherit the kingdom, and the unrepentant inherit Gehenna, the eternal life for the repentant, eternal suffering in Gehenna for the unrepentant. This was a simple concept. Today's explanation of Gehenna as purely you know, an illustration of what hell might be like in some unknown location or dimension would be foreign to the first century Jew, right? This a preterist, preterist, realized eschatology already in not yet frameworks were not part of the Jewish apocalyptic mindset. The Jewish people longed for an eschatological restoration of the kingdom of Israel, and they understood the bare reality of an eschatological judgment of fire. Jesus affirms and he ties these things together and brings home truth of the place for the unrepentant. Let's summarize the terms then. I wish more translations used Sheol, Hades and Gehenna rather than hell. Uh, firstly, Sheol is Hades, which is the abyss or abusos or abyssos, which is Tartaros, which is a present reality under the earth, a holding place for final judgment. On the screen is an illustration of the Jewish worldview. You have the outer waters, the heavens plural, the height of the heavens, the outer heavens, God's abode, the headquarters of the cosmic kingdom, at the planetary systems in the lower heavens, the earth with its image-bearing people and kingdom beneath the earth, Sheol, Hades, uh, the foundations of the earth, the storehouses of water, the cosmic kingdom, all belongs to God. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, including Sheol, Deuteronomy 10, 14. Secondly, then Gehenna is the lake of fire or the place of the lake of fire. It's the eschatological judgment place, a valley that will be filled by God with fire, a place of eternal, conscious, corporal punishment, 
torment, burning, darkness, never-ending ruining that, that the body will feel and experience. And the severity of the bad news lifts up the good news. The watering down of the severity to eternal incorporeal spiritual punishment, uh, purgatory after death, or a quick end to the soul, annihilationism, uh, all those who say that hell is pain that we receive today, a kind of realized eschatology, or even saying that we are given an infinite time period, but God will win us all around in the end, universalism, is to cheapen the good news. All hellish suffering today points to the reality of hellfire to come. God's law and order. Now we have painted the field of play, the canvas of existence, we should highlight that God's law and order penetrates all of it. His universal law reflects who he is. He is a God of order who demands his creation to remain orderly. God has a universal law for his personal creatures whose uh, purpose is to relate, uh, praise and glorify God, which I will call personal law. Such is the importance of God's law. The first foundational unit of God's word is the law, the Torah, the instruction given to the Israelites, entwined through the narrative. Now, last time we recognized God's goodness, didn't we? God is good. Now, if that sounds like a cliche, it's because we miss the depths of its truth. God beholds perfect morality in thought, word, and deed. That God is moral is the difference between monotheism and polytheism. Many gods mean multiple moral standards. A pagan worldview meant that man's destiny was not linked to his behavior. God is the absolute moral standard expressed through thou shalt and thou shalt not. Now, Sarna says that Mesopotamian society suffered from a malaise which scholars have characterized as overtones of anxiety. Evil was accounted as a necessity without a single source of morality, with no assurance of, of justice being served, and the shift in sands of truth no wonder they cause an unstable mind. If you believe that no one being is in control, no wonder you have anxiety. You can be assured of nothing. God's law includes the moral aspect that once more is applied universally. The Ten Commandments and the rules and the regulations that followed for Israel were an expression of this universal personal law. Chow points out that the laws are actually applications and demonstrations of transcendent theological realities or ones established at creation. Now generally Christians tend to categorize Old Testament law into moral law, civil law and ceremonial law and this, arra this arrangement then allows them to, to kind of pick and choose which Old Testament laws to follow if any. But actually as, as Wenham points out in his commentary on Leviticus, this division is foreign to biblical thinking. Now, following suit, the New Testament doesn't differentiate between the three categories. While it can be helpful to, to broadly distinguish certain portions of the law, they are woven together. 
and we will look at the law in, in perhaps more depth when we approach that section of the narrative. But what I will say is this, of course um, we're not under the Mosaic law rather than New Covenant, but the principles, the principles of the Mosaic law is something we should follow, but the pre precise stipulations and the applications will differ for today. The psalmist writes, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Psalm 119, 160. In Leviticus, we read that God told the Israelites to be holy because I am holy. Far from uh, dismissing the Old Testament law, in continuity, Jesus said to the Jewish people, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Matthew 5, 48. Peter would later say that as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 15-16. When Jesus is questioned on which is the greatest commandment, he says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Mark 12, 30-31. He is quoting Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. The principles from the Old Testament remain in the New Testament. In fact, when we turn to the ministry of Jesus, he isn't actually telling them to give up Torah observance necessarily. The point I'm making is that there's a, there's a continuity of God's universal law throughout the Bible, the expression of which can be specific for the Israelites, but the broad principles remain to be applied to our lives to preserve the order of creation. As Christians, we are to uphold God's ordained order, and the world who are set on crossing boundaries and blurring distinctions should observe our witness of following his principles under his universal law. For God to be in communion with his creatures, they must fall within his universal boundaries. Psalm 19 is beautifully written by David, a flawed man who knew God, and in the middle of which he says this, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous together. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 19, 7 to 11. God's law teaches and instructs us about who he is, what he has ordained at creation, and how to properly relate to him. Now, errors of the Western church include adding and taking away or blurring his principles. Some keep the letter of the law only to override the principle, while some can become legalistic. Now, too often I see finger pointing, calling people legalists at those who uphold his word as precious gold. <laughs> While his personal law is something he commands us to uphold, the rest of his creation, the field of play, and his impersonal creatures is ordered and bound by God's universal law I will call field law. 
Jeremiah refers to the fixed order of heaven and earth, Jeremiah 33:25. In science, we refer to different fields of physical law with primary and secondary laws. Laws include the law of life, that life only comes from life. The laws of chemistry, our bodies are, are powered by chemical reactions with complex information stored in DNA molecules. The periodic table demonstrates the orderly logic of the properties of elements. The laws of planetary motion. Kepler discovered that planets in our solar system obey three major laws of nature. The laws of physics describe the behaviour of how the universe operates at its most fundamental level, how light propagates, how energy is transported, how gravity operates, how mass moves through space. The laws of mathematics are particularly interesting because they are abstract uh, but are they're transcendently true. Right? How does a naturalist account for such a transcendent truth? The laws of logic, which again are transcendent truths. The laws of nature depend on the laws of logic. As image bearers, we instinctively know the laws of logic expressed you know, in, in arguments on Twitter. Everyone is pointing out uh, each other's flawed logic, right? <laughs> the uniformity of nature. An assumption in science is that nature behave, behaves the same yesterday, today and forever. Right? The laws do not change and they apply throughout the universe. Just as the aspects of God's personal law overlap and intertwine as one, so too field law is interwoven, each broad category affecting the other. There is even a hierarchy in the laws of physics, for example. Sir Isaac Newton, like Kepler, a creation scientist, formulated the laws of gravity and motion from the understanding that Kepler's laws, the laws of planetary motion, could be derived mathematically. Dr. Jason Lyle says laws of chemistry are logically derived from the laws of physics, many of which can be logically derived from other laws of physics and laws of mathematics. There may be some fundamental laws that do not depend on another but God's will alone, but most frequently we see the layers and fabric of ordinances that come together to make life possible. God's logic is demonstrated through the study of these laws which are ordered in a precise way to suspend and sustain the very existence of the universe. The field, the heavens and the earth, nature, has no choice but to obey the lawgiver. Evidence for the creator and lawgiver is observed in the fine-tuning of the universe. Everything from the electromagnetic forces, the colour and mass of the sun and the earth's distance from it, uh, the strength of bonds between atoms, the earth's gravity, axle tilt, rotation period, magne magnetic field, cross thickness, oxygen, nitrogen ratio, carbon dioxide, water vapour, ozone levels, everything is just right. Right? The whole universe is perfectly balanced in, in strength and ratio and quantity and rotation speed and viscosity and energy levels. Praise God. His field law demonstrates that his personal law does not change. It cannot be manipulated. Determined by man, it is what it is. Play by the law or be subject to a life of frustration and pain. You can act as if gravity does not exist, but you will likely get hurt in the process 
of proving it wrong. Now, I will add to ensure the sustainability of creation, the Bible also tells us that he's determined limits for certain aspects of it. Job 38 says, shut in the sea with doors and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Job 38, 4 to 11. Proverbs 8 mentions he assigned to the sea its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Proverbs 8, 29. Psalm 104, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Verse 5. God has prescribed distinct limits and coverings and boundaries for people, people groups, geographical areas and aspects of his creation. In summary, Western thought will attempt to convince you that God's personal law can be amended day to day, your truth to my truth, progressivism. They will also attempt to convince you that his field law is not bound and that the sky could fall down at any moment. Wolves and foxes, I say, wolves and foxes. They will blur the lines and we must continue to redraw the truthful order. They will wash past and we must stand firm. All people know that God exists and therefore they are without excuse of breaking his law. Paul says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So they are without excuse. Romans 1, 19 to 20. From the scriptures, from creation itself, from conscience, we are without excuse. Well, what about, what about a tribe in the Amazon jungle? Well, are they atheists? <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. They're more likely to instinctively have religious beliefs. And Paul goes on to say that the Gentiles who do not have the written law show that the work of the law, the universal law, is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Romans 2.15. Everybody knows that murder is wrong, that stealing is wrong, that lying is wrong. We know, right? Who are you trying to kid? Sin can be defined as any violation of or failure to adhere to the commands of God or the desire to do so. Grudem defines sin as sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God in act attitude or nature and Jesus made clear it's not just the acts of sin but the desires of the heart in the sermon on the mount he highlights anger and lust and Paul would underline jealousy and anger and selfishness and this isn't just New Testament observance the Ten Commandments lists coveting right attitude matters in fact the greatest commandment according to Jesus which uh, we've just quoted is from the Old Testament to love God and to love your neighbor with with all your heart. John Piper defines the root of sin as the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not rev reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved.
Social media is plastered with outrage, but Piper says the ultimate outrage in the universe that we don't treasure God above everything. John teaches us that sin is lawlessness in 1 John 3, 4. Those who have abandoned the law of God and seek their own way. Sin makes us less human, pushing us further from God. Isaiah said to Israel, which is true for all who are unrepentant, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 59.2 Paul warned, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. 1 Peter 2.11 we're at war against the passions of the flesh. Even as Christians, we have to continually choose repentance and to resist evil. We are told to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew 6, 13. It is good to remember that God does not tempt, but tests man. And no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. James encouraged us regarding helping our backsliding brothers and sisters. My brothers, if any among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whomever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. James 5, 19-20 God's law means that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Romans 3.19 Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, 2 Corinthians 5, we persuade others to come to the foot of the cross. God's law necessarily means final judgment for those who break it. Now, we've mentioned the great white throne judgment, and many passages speak of the final judgment day. So, for example, Paul said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Acts 17, 30 to 31. Peter said Jesus commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Jesus, the God-man, will be judge. Now, the unfaithful will be judged. God's judgment throughout history on the unfaithful, the flood, the dispersion at Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, and so forth, point to the future judgment. We're told there will be levels of punishment. God judges impartially according to each one's deeds in 1 Peter 1. He will render to each one according to his works for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury, Romans 2, 
6 to 8. Some sins are deemed worse than others. In the Torah, some sins meant banishment, while other sins meant death. Jesus stresses that sins against children are worse than others. Sexual sins are repeatedly presented as worse sins because of their grievous distortion of order. Jesus spoke of the weightier matters of the law in Matthew 23. Now that doesn't mean that the lightest judgment will be pleasant. They are, they're all heading to the lake of fire, right? even liars. But it's just that some will experience more punishment than others according to his life. In a parable, Jesus explained there would be levels of punishment, and that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Luke 12, 47-48. They all get beat. Jesus says some will receive the greater condemnation in Luke 20, and for others it will be more bearable on the day of judgment, Matthew 11. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Matthew 12, 36 to 37. Every deed will come into the light, for nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Luke 8, 17. Hebrews says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 4.13 Paul said, On that day, when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Romans 2.16 Most people in the world have some concept of God and a reckoning of hell. I once heard a guy say, a really angry guy say, I'm going to burn down that church. Well, maybe I wouldn't because God would get me. <laughs> At the back of their minds, their wickedness is restrained to some degree. The Lord is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 2 Peter 3, 9. So the unfaithful will be judged, but the faithful too will be judged. Yet, in the context for final judgment, we are reminded by Peter that the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. His reward will be great. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. Romans 2.7 Eternal life is the greatest reward, but also the base level reward. There are bonuses. We must all stand before him, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Romans 14.10-12 to the Christians in Corinth, Paul writes, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. 2 Corinthians 5.11 When Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. When Jesus says that, it does not mean you will not be judged, but that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
The unfaithful are judged to receive varying degrees of punishment. The faithful are judged to receive varying degrees of reward. Now, this is not a spectrum from, from wicked to righteous. There is a great chasm between the two. The wicked face deserved horrifying degrees of pain in the lake of fire. The righteous receive undeserved levels of reward in the kingdom. Paul's first letter to the Corinthians is revealing. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. 1 Corinthians 3. Revelation refers to rewarding your servants. In the parable of the ten miners, Jesus said the good servants would be rewarded in the kingdom with authority over five cities or ten cities according to their return on investment, how they had used their life for God's purposes. There will be positions of authority and hierarchy between us in the kingdom. Everyone in the kingdom will be full of joy. Today we think our possessions, our status, our position within, within a hierarchy or our number of followers determines our joy. But when we align with the purpose of our being, praising and glorifying God is what makes us complete with joy and happiness. And also there shouldn't be competition between brothers and sisters. God has unlimited rewards to be dished out and therefore we should encourage and help each other. Paul says he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So does that mean that Christian sins will be brought into the light also? Well, the context of the secret things brought into the light uh, is those who receive commendation or, or awards. So it seems possible. However, we also see verses that say that he will forget our sins. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea, Micah 7. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us, Psalm 103. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins, Isaiah 43. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews 8. Perhaps as our lives are assessed, our sins are brought into the light. But after recognition of being in Christ, forgiven, declared righteous, etc., our sins are blotted out and remembered no more. It is therefore a day to make us humble, but not fearful, an occasion of gladness, rejoicing and glory of God's grace. Now angels too will be judged in a final judgment. Do you not know that we are to judge angels? 
Therefore, all angels, good and wicked, will be judged, and the saints will assist in the court assembly. What is the point of a final judgment? If, as is the case at present, that the souls of the faithful go to heaven and the souls of the unfaithful go down to Sheol, Hades, why is a final judgment necessary? Well, it's not for God to weigh which side you are on. He's already divided you on death. The final judgment is, as Louis Burkhoff says, a declarative glory of God in formal forensic act which magnifies on the one hand his holiness and righteousness and on the other hand his grace and mercy. So how does the final judgment differ? Well it will be a time to hand out the rewards. Also it's not just a judgment on the spirit, the soul, but on the body and spirit together. It will be a judgment with bodies and they will be punished or rewarded in bodies. When people die now, um, it's not in public, is it? But then it will be in public for all, both heaven and, and earth and under the earth who have been resurrected. When we begin to understand the final judgment, the reality of the punishment for the unfaithful and the rewards for the faithful, it should motivate us to spread the good news, encourage one another to build upon the foundation of Christ and recalibrate our daily lives to win approval from God and not from man. Our works are not determined by apparent social media influence, whether you are paid or not, whether public or hidden from all but God, whether small or great. Final judgment should motivate us to good works, not as a means of salvation, but in the knowledge of receiving rewards in the kingdom. Jesus tells us to lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Not that the rewards are enjoyed in heaven, but that heaven will record your good works that will determine your rewards in the earthly kingdom. The opposite message of today's culture, or indeed the prosperity gospel. We don't live for today and flaunt our wealth. We work today to lay up treasures in heaven. Knowledge of the final day of justice should bring comfort. Paul said, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Colossians 3.25. Each time we cry out for justice to come in the world, we cry out for the hastening of the day. Maranatha, we know it will be an accurate judgment recorded in books. No paid experts, no fake evidence, no partial judges, no media influence. Every thought, word and deed will be dealt with accurately and fairly. All accounts will be settled. When we turn to the New Testament, we will look again at the timing of this final judgment because, as noted, it is after the millennial reign of Christ. So true justice will have been installed well beforehand, but the final judgment will take place at the end of the thousand years when there is uh, the resurrection of the wicked and when Satan has uh, had his final hurrah. Now, in the meantime, should we judge one another? Well, Paul said to the Corinthians, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, 2 Corinthians 4, 5. To the Romans, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, Romans 12. 
It is not for us to avenge ourselves or to take the final judgment seat ourselves. Either Jesus paid for the sin on the cross if they give their life to him or God will deal with their sin, expecting payment from them. It means we need not be bitter, angry, resentful against people. Sooner or later, they will be dealt with. Leave it with God. We follow the character of Christ. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 1 Peter 2. Now, some confused judging people in terms of condemning them to the lake of fire, the final judgment by Christ, with general everyday judgment, this sermon. Don't judge me is a common phrase. Only God can judge me, which is it's true in terms of the final judgment, but not everyday discernment. After all, do we not have court judges in each country, right? Should they not judge? Now, typically, they will point to the words of Jesus, judge not, but it continues that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Matthew 7, 1 to 2. In context, it's clear Jesus is cautioning us to first take the log out of your own eye, Matthew 7, 3 to 5, before you point to the failings of others. Check yourself before you judge, because the same measure will be applied to you. Don't be a hypocrite, is, is his message here. Jesus actually says, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. So we are told to judge others, but with right judgment, not hypocritical judgment. I mean, the practicality of church order should be an obvious example. We have to make judgments whether someone is what Jesus called a wolf and deal with them appropriately, or judge whether a person is qualified for eldership, church discipline to everyday discernment. Paul makes a distinction between judging outsiders who, let's face it, have not made a commitment to keep God's law and those inside the church who have professed to follow Christ. So we don't, we don't judge in the sense of removing God from his throne and decree an eternal sentence, but we are to judge others primarily in the church with grace and slowness, checking ourselves first in line with the scriptures and the character of Christ. God's providence. Providence is not a word used in the Bible. However, it can be a helpful word to summarize the aspect of God's ongoing relationship to his creation. Now, distinguished from God's sovereignty, John Piper says that providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. Or you could say providence is wise and purposeful sovereignty. In other words, he adds, absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. That's his providence. Now, this is where kind of debates between Reformed or Calvinist versus Arminian positions creep in. To what extent is God involved in the relationship to the, to the willful choices of humans? Now, without being drawn into a full-on discussion, God chooses and, and we choose. He chooses and we choose. And while you know, I don't fully understand, both remain true. Providence uh, can be categorized into three parts, uh, preservation, uh, concurrence, and government. Now, firstly, preservation. Uh, the prophet Ezra says of God, 
You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. Nehemiah 9.6 His providence means he preserves his creation. He maintains the order of the properties of creation, which is why we can do science. We take it for granted that water acts like water and that grass continues to grow as grass and that the rubber in your car continues to be rubber. But it is only because of God's providence. Paul tells us that in him all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Job 12.10. In him we live and move and have our being. Acts 17.28. When the writer of Hebrews says God upholds the universe by the word of his power, the word uphold here is more than simply sustaining life, but active purposeful control over the movement of all. His preservation therefore means he's the keeper of all creation, sustaining and maintaining the properties thereof and we have a hint of the next subdivision of providence of purposely controlling its activities. So secondly, concurrence. Grudem says, God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. In Ephesians 1 we read, In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 God not only maintains but directs everything. Natural occurrences such as weather are a result of God. Even natural disasters are God-caused disasters. For to the snow he says fall on the earth, likewise to the downpour his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens. From its chambers comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds. By the breath of God ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. He loads the thick cloud with moisture, the clouds scatter his lightning. They turn around and around by his guidance to accomplish all that he commands them on the face of the habitable world. Whether for correction or for his land or for love, he causes it to happen. Job 37, 6-13 Again, Psalm 135 says, He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. If you're concerned about the climate, don't protest. Call on God. In the story of Jonah, we read, The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. The Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. This is a hands-on God. <laughs> the Psalms tell us he causes plant life to grow and that he feeds the wild animals. The book of Job tells us that God provides prey for the lion and raven. Jesus told us to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Matthew 6.26 
Even the seemingly random chance events are directed by God. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.33 Events are fully caused by God and fully caused by creature. A plant grows in accordance with its nature. This is observable, but the Bible tells us that God works behind the scenes causing it to grow. God is the primary cause, the creature is the secondary cause. Both fully cause the events. His providence covers the affairs of the nations. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and he leads them away. Job 12, 23. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Psalm 22. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Acts 17. His providence covers all aspects of our lives. From the scriptures we know he determines our birth, our length of days, whether we eat, all our needs. His providential care covers all our actions, our success or failure, gifts and ability. God's fatherly providence means he provides for us, he encourages us, he protects us, he comforts us, he cares for us, he disciplines us, he loves us. While we fully make our own choice, God influences our desires and decisions. Now to clarify, as Grudem adds, we should affirm that God causes all things to happen, but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices. Choices that have real and eternal results and for which we are held accountable. So what is the relationship between God and evil? Is God responsible for sin? Well, nowhere in scripture does God directly do anything evil, take pleasure in it or blame God for it, nor excuse man for it. Instead, God brings about evil deeds through willing actions of people for his good purposes. Joseph's life is a good example when he said to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 50, 20. We also read of how God raised up Pharaoh and hardened his heart, as well as the Egyptian people, to demonstrate his power so that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Paul, commenting on this episode, concludes with a universal statement, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills in Romans 9. Though it was Satan who directly brought harm to the life of Job, he acknowledges the primary cause. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job 1, 21-22. We see that it was God as the primary cause, but also the free choice of men to crucify Jesus. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, primary and full cause, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, secondary and full cause, Acts 2, 23. 
When God brings evil on men, it is to discipline believers, cause a repentance in unbelievers, or a judgment of death for hardened unbelievers, ultimately for his glory to bring good for those he calls his own. Now, it is true that God ordains events, and it is also true that moral beings freely make a choice to act. We do acknowledge that we don't know precisely how God ordains evil acts of willing persons without being blamed for the evil. Moreover, we do not know how God causes us to choose something willingly. We will never fully understand the mystery of God's relationship to our sin. Thirdly, government. God governs all things in order to accomplish his purposes. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Psalm 103.19 God raises men up and brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Isaiah 40 He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Daniel 2 His providence as part of his sovereignty means his activity sets up and removes authority. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4 For from him and through him and to him are all things, Romans 11. Again, all things work together for good according to his purpose. So in conclusion, within providence we have preservation, upholding and maintaining the properties of his creation, concurrence, his hands-on cooperation and directing of creation to cause them to act, and government, his purposes accomplished through governance of all things, subgroups of God's providence that overlap. Now, I'll finish by saying this. In Matthew 6, when Jesus speaks about fatherly providence, uh, feeding the birds and, and, and clothing the lilies and the grass, the objective of the message was to free his people from anxiety. He will clothe you also who are of greater worth. As John Piper points out, the argument is valid if God really is the one who sees to it that the birds find their worms and the lilies wear their flowers. If the birds and lilies find are simply acting by natural laws with no divine hand, then Jesus is just playing with words. But he is not playing with words. He really believes that God's hand is at work in the smallest details of natural processes. And I've just began uh, John Piper's book on providence, actually. I do recommend it. We shouldn't have to worry about what we eat, we drink, what we wear. We seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Because the father decides when a sparrow dies and the number of hairs on your head. Right? God has got it. Put your faith in him. To finish today, let's contrast the Judeo-Christian worldview with various common worldviews and take a look at how the church has been infiltrated by foreign philosophies. We remember that a worldview consists of the canvas of existence or the field of play, the players of existence, so to speak, the laws or rules of existence, the history or origins of existence, what we call protology, the goal or purpose 
purpose of existence, missiology, alongside the doctrine of salvation, soteriology, and the future of existence, eschatology. Now, firstly, naturalism. We looked at this when refuting evolutionism in part five, but let's recapitulate what we learned. The framework of naturalism holds to the belief that existence can be explained by nature alone. Natural laws and forces necessarily independent from any kind of divine being through which the, the evolving universe is at any point a product of these laws, meaning absolute morality and ultimate authority are thrown out. Naturalistic protology begins the story with the Big Bang. The goal of the players is to outdo your neighbours under the banner survival of the fittest. Naturalistic soteriology is defined by progress. Death of the weak players is viewed as necessary as the cleanser of nature, even profitable under the banner natural selection. Naturalistic eschatology has no specific destiny in mind, though the so-called fittest players point to looming natural disasters. <laughs> unending battles of survival and death cycles produ producing progressive stronger players. The players too are made up of natural building blocks void of spirit or identifying soul and the self-awarding fittest players self-describe as homo sapiens sapiens, wise wise man. The naturalistic canvas of existence is decisively materialistic. Materialism which overlaps with naturalism believes that everything in existence is material. The definition of matter plays into various forms depending on how you view uh, the mind, numbers, values and so forth and therefore can be broader than naturalism. Likewise, materialism says the universe is all that exists. Inevitably, this philosophy leads to the desire of accumulating as many possessions of perceived value as possible. Christians who fall into this philosophical trap are practically materialists. Okay, Hinduism. Hinduism is a complex worldview with many gods and it's hard to pin down, but let's simplify it. Brahman is said to be the ultimate reality in the universe and the final cause of all that exists. And from this, three main players viewed as gods. Brahma, creator, a Vishnu, preserver, and Shiva, purifier or destruction. Uh, from these uh, protological gods, reincarnation is presumed with birth, and maintenance and, and death and onto rebirth only to continue the cycle. This cycle is called the darkness of samsara, is a result of the fall of man from the protological golden age. The mission of the Hindutva, the community seeking oneness, is good karma in accordance with Dharma, the, the cosmic governor, to escape the cycle and attain liberation from known human existence to non-existence and oneness with Brahman, the universe. Eschatologically, Shiva is said to purify the universe so that Brahma can restore it back to harmony with Brahman, establishing the refreshed golden age. Now, pantheism, which is somewhat included in Hinduism, views the whole universe as God. It means God is not distinct from creation. It would mean God is unholy and not unchanging, denying the attributes of God. Pantheism denies not just God's distinct personality, but individuals 
too. It dethrones God and devalues man. Now, in Buddhism too, they endeavor to become one with creation, identity stripped, no longer distinct of personal importance. Now, the Judeo-Christian worldview, before we come on to Platonism, let's remind ourselves of the Judeo-Christian worldview. It pictures a canvas made up of the heavens and the earth. Both natural building blocks are the spiritual and cohesive and dynamic. The heavens are plural, continuous, and God dwells in the heights of heaven, i.e. within his creation. Biblical protology includes a field of play with players created purposely to glorify the creator, orderly and originally good. Sin, chaos, suffering and death have no place within its origins. The introduction of sin, which brought about suffering and death, point to the soteriology that is found in Jesus the Christ, the creator incarnate. Salvation has been secured by the substitutionary atonement for sin on the cross by this Messiah. His suffering in this age before glory in the age to come characterizes the narrative. Biblical eschatology is about the restoration of all things to its original beauty and order described as a new heavens and a new earth. Messiah who once suffered will be glorified as king of all the earth and who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And this messianic eschatological age to come will be inaugurated by the day of the Lord. Eternal wrath for the wicked, eternal rewards for the righteous. Hopefully uh, some of these aspects should start now to be pieced together in your mind map. The gospel is threaded through the storyline of redemptive history found in the major events. Creation, fall, flood, Babel, covenants, cross, the day of the Lord and the kingdom to come. The messianic kingdom is future earthly, Israel-centric, as is the biblical narrative, when Jesus becomes the eternal king of the Jews, having restored their kingdom of Israel, fulfilling the covenants and prophetic visions. Time has a beginning, is linear, and divided into this age, with a primary theme of mercy and grace, and the age to come, just as the seven days are divided into six days of work, followed by the, the day of rest. This age is defined by the cross and points forwards to the age to come. It can be summarized as cruciform apocalypticism. Cruciform, this age shaped by the demonstration of love and, and mercy of the cross, which is why we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Apocalyptic, the day of the Lord, the day of Christ at the age to come. When we say apocalyptic, we tend to think of Hollywood movies, but it refers to the Jewish framework of eschatology in Jesus's day. They understood well-developed themes from the law and the prophets of the resurrection of the dead, eternal life, the day of the Lord, the kingdom of God, and the final judgment and so forth. And they had a very, uh, very Jewish apocalyptic worldview. So cruciform apocalypticism, or perhaps better, Jewish 
cruciform apocalypticism. Judgment and blessing in this age points to the climax of judgment and blessing at the day of the Lord. Now, in contrast, deism acknowledges God is transcendent, and some agree there is a final judgment day. However, they deny his imminence, as if God wound up the universe like a clock and just let it run with no involvement. And nominal Christians who, who do not worship, who do not pray, who do not trust in God for his providential care or really fear him are practical deists. Unlike other religious systems, the true God of the Bible is both infinite and personal. And Grudem explains that gods of the ancient Greek and Roman mythology were personal, but they were not infinite. On the other hand, deism portrays a god who is infinite, but far too removed from the world to be personally involved in it. Similarly, pantheism holds that God is infinite, since the whole universe is thought to be God. But such a god can certainly not be personal, nor relate to us as persons. God is both transcendent and imminent. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4, 6. God is distinct and Lord over creation which is totally dependent on him. He is involved in it. His involvement, his imminence and providence is the story of the Bible and what sets the Judeo-Christian worldview apart from others. He is distinct from creation but has chosen to dwell within and be part of it and be involved with it. Now Platonism, Western society and therefore the church today has been heavily influenced by Platonic thought, ancient Greek Hellenistic philosophy, meaning the Judeo-Christian worldview has been morphed somewhat into Christo-Platonism. Now, Plato, who lived hundreds of years before Christ, was a philosopher of Athens, a student of Socrates, who developed a dualistic framework of the immaterial, the intelligible world, which is eternal, timeless, with ideal forms, and the material, perceptual world, which is created, a timeful, with corrupt copies. Now, Platonic protology begins then with the eternal immaterial ideal and the creation of material viewed as inferior. The goal is to escape the material world through enlightenment. The philosophers who transcend the material to the immaterial will then rule over the earth to help save the unenlightened. This dualistic framework of immaterial and material became the supernatural and the natural. Rather than the field of play being the heavens and the earth, it became the supernatural and the natural, for the most part distinct from each other. This is Christoplatonism. Hope and destiny became fixated on an immaterial heaven rather than resurrection from death unto the restoration of the heavens and the earth. And by the 4th and 5th centuries, Christoplatonism became mainstream. And this Greek Platonic framework naturally lends an over-spiritualized view of all that is deemed good. Therefore, because an earthly kingdom would be inappropriate for ideal immaterialism, the kingdom was spiritualized 
and applied to the present. The Jewishness of the narrative was blotted out. But because Israel is so evidently central to the narrative, it had to be redefined as the church today. And we did a Pontius Pilate on Israel. When I now mention the centrality of Israel in the gospel to, to other Christians, even to church leaders, they can't grasp it because they have a Christo-Platonic worldview. This field of play with its warped protology, soteriology and eschatology remains today, predominantly with us Gentiles in the West. In the 7th century, Islam would follow suit with a heavenly immaterial hope. And Harrigan points out that the Reformation, while it restored the substitutionary atonement, it did little, he says, it did little to restore a biblical playing field, so to speak. When naturalism began to grip the culture, the church was left with a platonic field of play, which is why I'm spending you know, over two hours on this today. The Greek vision of history sees endless cycles moving forward with no clear goal. The Hebrew or biblical vision of history sees repeating prophetic patterns throughout that, that point to a greater eschatological reality and are moving in a linear direction towards a clear and final goal. Now, other forms of dualism include uh, two primary forces, God and the universe, that have existed alongside eternally with a never-ending battle between God and the evil of the universe. It denies God as king over his creation and the ultimate and final judgment. It also denies that creation is essentially good, made bad by sinful man. Therefore, material is essentially in and of itself evil. Now, those who deny Christ but acknowledge the spiritual aspect become dualists and Satan lures people into new age movements and dangerous cults or games. So let's briefly look at the history of Christoplatonism and see how the four major variations of Christoplatonism arose over the centuries. First up, escapist Christoplatonism. Now, in the second to third century, Oregon of Alexandria was a scholar surrounded by Hellenistic culture. Hellenistic means to speak Greek or identify with the Greeks. And his Neoplatonic worldview meant the hope of the restoration of the heavens and the earth became an otherworldly hope. The, the resurrection of the body was swapped for eternal, immaterial soul dwelling. Christianity embraced escapism. Our bodies and the earthly home were declared negative, almost irredeemable. The heavens and the earth would have to be annihilated. And rather than the righteous going to heaven and the wicked heading to Hades, as we've learned, all would go down to some form of judgment. The return of Jesus became a footnote because if he's not returning to restore creation, since immaterial heaven is the destiny, What's the big deal? And the Old and New Testament would begin to drift apart. And by Constantine of the fourth century, aspects of the promised Jewish kingdom were spiritualized. Monastic lifestyles, monks, nuns became popular. It stems from Platonic escapism. Can you see how this is still embedded in church thinking today? Then came Dominionistic 
Christoplatonism. The issue of God's sovereignty raised its head. How could God rule both spheres of material and immaterial? And it was settled by understanding his sovereignty through the present material kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was not viewed as Oregon's immaterial heaven, nor the biblical view of the messianic eschatological kingdom on earth, but as the church through political and organizational power structures. The Roman Empire under Constantine then became in some minds the materialization of divine sovereignty. Can you see how this is still embedded in church thinking today? The Pope then assumed the material sovereignty after the fall of the empire and Augustine would claim the middle ground between Oregon's escapism and dominionism saying the church is now the kingdom of God. The church had replaced Israel, replacement theology or supersessionism. So this move from church militant to church triumphant took hold right through the centuries, bypassed the Reformation and is still with us today with our social gospel and building the kingdom phraseology. Dispensational Christoplatonism. Dispensationalism arrived in the late 19th century, which is a system of interpretation that derives somewhat from Christoplatonism. It views history as divided by God into dispensations of time and almost two concurrent plans of salvation. Israel is connected with material salvation on earth and the Gentile church is connected with an immaterial salvation in heaven. Fourthly, inaugurational Christoplatonism. Inaugurational Christoplatonism took root in the early 20th century and liberal scholars in Europe ironically recognised the Jewishness and apocalyptic thought of the New Testament authors, calling their approach consistent eschatology, though they failed to recognise the significance of the cross. In response, more scholars came up with what they labelled realised eschatology, saying that Jesus realised the Jewish apocalypticism within himself and then the church, and they applied the themes spiritually in the present. Now decades on, still more scholars proclaimed a position in between consistent eschatology and realised eschatology. Jewish apocalypticism remained eschatological but was also presently becoming progressively realised, as if the immaterial sphere was slowly coming upon the material sphere, God's sovereignty expressed through the spiritual kingdom of the church. This already and not yet position was developed to become inaugurated eschatology, as if the kingdom had been inaugurated. Dominionism and inaugurated eschatology are similar but differ in that dominionism is without a Jewish eschatological hope, whereas inaugurated eschatology, although similar in practice, holds fairly to the Jewish apocalypticism. Revivals and Christian revolutions will outgrow the earth and we will take it for his glory. Both are children of Plato. Rather than the cross defining the pattern of this age, you know, deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, before Jesus the eschatological rock comes thundering down to the earth to establish his Jewish kingdom at the apocalyptic day of the Lord, the progressing church influence becomes the dominant characteristic. 
Now, Christoplatonism can mean various views of the millennium. Now, to be clear, the Old Testament sets it up, but the book of Revelation is explicit that upon his return, Jesus will rule the earth from Jerusalem for a thousand year reign, the millennium, at the end of which is a short period of Satan being released, defeated, and finally thrown into the lake of fire and the great white throne judgment. This is pre-millennialism, like pre-before the millennial, which is the historic, literal, plain reading that we hold to. Christoplatonism meant an amillennialist approach, meaning no literal millennial reign on earth, or a postmillennialist approach, meaning Christ will return after the church has had a golden age. Now, some see Jesus having inaugurated the kingdom and the thousand years began in the first century. Well, you don't have to know much about church history to wonder how that could possibly be applied. Therefore, the thousand years is typically viewed as symbolic, and there are all kinds of variations. But be in no doubt it is forms of Christoplatonism that have swept the future hope of the messianic kingdom behind us. Now, having said that, some dispensationalists can be premillennialists, and there are some in this camp that I really appreciate as teachers, but some will fall into the amillennialist camp, as do pretty much all escapists. Inaugurationalists will fall between amillennialism and postmillennialism, and Dominius tend to be firmly postmillennialists. I hope I haven't lost you with the terminology, but sometimes labels do help to understand broad theological positions. I have to say, uh, John Harrigan has done some great work on this in his book, The Gospel of Christ Crucified, so credit to him. Now, the Christian life is not defined by building the kingdom, but rather waiting for him. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Hebrews 9, 28. It's not just Israel and the kingdom that is warped. Everything from an ancient Greek worldview is pushed onto doctrines of the resurrection, regeneration, inheritance, liberty, faith, destiny, blessing, glory, light, God's transcendence, his imminence, his severity, you name it. What I will say is that most Christians, even pastors in the UK, they're probably not aware of which camp that they are in. Eschatology is hardly touched on in the UK. So if you ask them, are you a premillennialist or an amillennialist or are you pre-trib or post-trib or pre-wrath, they probably haven't grappled with these subjects. They may have picked up kind of some theology from this camp or more theology from this camp over here, but they, they might not be aware of the inconsistencies in their worldview. You, you may be you maybe might be watching this yourself and thinking, well, I'm not familiar with these terms. And that's normal here, right? And this is where, you know, we can't just say with an angry tone, you need to take off your Christoplatonist, post-millennialist cloak, right? We've got to be patient, but bold and show them how we've arrived at this Western Gentile-centric worldview and then tell them to take the cloak off and then steer them back to a biblical worldview. You know, in Jesus's day, they contended with the Greek worldview. I mean, the New Testament was written in Greek. They studied and quoted the Septuagint, the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It wasn't the language that was the problem. It was the philosophy which they saw issue with and they saw it infiltrate the church. 
church and they warned against it and we should warn and correct against it today. We need what David Pawson long called a degreasing of the church. We must strip back all forms of Christoplatonism, escapism, dominionism, dispensationalism, inaugurationism and return to the simple two-age timeline and biblical new creationism. In summary then, the total sum of reality, the field of play, is not nature, is not Brahman, is not immaterial and material, but the heavens and the earth. From the first verse, the Bible refutes atheism. A personal God exists and the universe has had an origin that did not come from the Big Bang. It refutes naturalism. Creation itself has origins in the Creator. It refutes agnostic we can know God who has revealed himself to us. It refutes pantheism. God is transcendent to his creation. It refutes polytheism. There is one God. It refutes materialism. God is distinct from his creation. It refutes evolutionism. God instantaneously, instantaneously created the mature universe in six days. It refutes dualism. God was alone when he created. It refutes humanism. God, not man, is the ultimate reality. For the church, we have identified the trinity of corruption. Evolutionism distorted the protology. Platonism distorted soteriology, which developed the context to lead to the distortion that is realized eschatology. These three, evolutionism, Platonism, and realized eschatology plague the church and its message to the world. When I ask church leaders fundamental questions about the big picture gospel and they stumble through an answer, it's because their worldview has been infected by worldly philosophy, typically passed down through the generations and denominational frameworks. And we have to be patient when addressing these errors because no one wants to fundamentally change their worldview. You know, you may have to admit that your understanding and the way that you've always done things may be part partially in error. It messes with your programs, evangelism, teaching. It could call into question your life's work. So there's good reason to continue with what we already know. But we have to attempt to drop the Gentile, Western, Christoplatonic worldview, unlearn the evolutionary framework, the Greek influence, the kingdom now, hell now, realized eschatological mentality, and return to the pages of scripture with a Jewish cruciform apocalypticism, the worldview of the apostles in the first century. In closing then in this mammoth session, we've discovered more about the dwelling place of God, the nature of the cosmos. You'll hopefully have clarity on Sheol, Hades and the lake of fire. We looked at God's law and order, his providence. And finally, we contrasted the biblical Judeo-Christian worldview with worldly ones. You now have a better understanding of the field of play that we are part of and hopefully an appreciation and in awe of the one who counts the hairs of your head. So to close this section on the order of the cosmic kingdom, we'll turn to the order of the players next time. I promise it won't be as long. Like, subscribe, share with friends. Maranatha.